You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was listening to Donald Whitney, um, a seminary professor. He was on the Christian radio station, our local one, and he was talking about prayer. And there was a certain comment he made that, that struck a chord with me. He said that the struggle for many Christians is that we find ourselves saying the same old things about the same old things every time we pray. Uh, and knowing we were doing a series on Ephesians, in Ephesians, you have two prayers of Paul. And I can't help but wonder, is that one of the reasons why we have prayers recorded in the Bible to enable to teach us how to pray more effectively and how to pray more joyfully when we all at times probably feel as if when we're praying, we're praying the same old things in the same old way. Uh, so I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And I mentioned that we have two prayers in this letter of only six chapters. The first prayer was in Ephesians 1 and verses 3 through 14. And the focus of that prayer was that you might experience the hope of your calling in Christ. Well, in this second prayer, which is in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the focus is slightly different. In, in this prayer, the focus is going to be that every believer would know the power of God and display the love of Christ. So as we come to this second prayer, keep that sort of big idea before you, that every believer would know the power of God and display the love of Christ. So how is that going to look? How do you pray in line with that for both yourself as well as for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's hopefully what we'll, we'll discern here. Um, so in this prayer, you could look at it almost as if there's three levels, and they interact, but, but three levels that, for the sake of our discussion, are going to focus first on approach, then on appeal, and then adoration. So those are the three levels that we'll proceed through. Approach, then appeal, and finally adoration. Uh, but let's go to verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. Note the first three words, for this reason. Look across the page and you'll see that that's how the chapter began in verse 1. And we had said last week the reason for this is Paul begins his prayer 
in the beginning of chapter 3, but then takes a digression for a moment and wants to deal with a, a growing concern they have for his safety. So now in verse 14, he's coming back to the prayer that he initially started but interrupted. So looking at verse 14, thinking about prayer, for this reason I kneel before the Father. So as we think of our approach to prayer, that it is a privilege, but that approach involves first our attitude when praying. And you notice Paul says, I kneel before the Father. Now this could be referring to a physical posture. We know when looking through the scriptures, there are different physical postures one could assume in prayer. Typical though in the Old Testament, as well as even in the early first century here, the typical posture for prayer was standing. So I don't think Paul so much is emphasizing a physical position as much as he's emphasizing an inward attitude. To, to kneel would symbolize with that the thought of humility and surrender. That as he is praying from a prison cell, he is saying, I, I kneel before the Father. And isn't that what should be at the heart of vibrant prayer? A recognition of who we are and who it is that we are speaking to. In fact, this phrase, I kneel before the Father, is an interesting one because Paul may have been taking this from Isaiah 45. We have a very similar, almost identical phrasing there. But then he also will say this phrase in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul talks about that every knee will bow, every tongue confess. So you can almost see that this is something that is very close to Paul's heart, this thought of humility and surrender in prayer. And so we must realize that we are approaching God. It is a privilege. We do so in Christ, but let's never forget that we are not approaching him on the same level, that we are a finite, created, sinful being, redeemed by grace, but yet finite and limited, and he is not. But you notice as well in verse 15, it goes on to speak of an awareness of who you are praying to. So our approach must not incorporate our attitude, but just a reminder in that attitude who we are approaching. For Paul, he simply says, I kneel before the Father. Now, in a letter that's only six chapters long, the word Father appears 11 times. And in different contexts, as we'll see, when he'll, in chapter 6, he'll talk about children and parents. But at this point, to refer to God as our Father is referring to him as the ultimate source, the sole creator of all life. A firm grasp on who he is speaking to and addressing. Herman Bavinck, who's a Dutch theologian of systematic theology, uh, said that confession of the Trinity is the heartbeat of the Christian religion. Well, I would like to take that and say, confession of the Trinity is also the heartbeat of the Christian concept of prayer. Uh, that we are addressing the Father, as we know, through what the Son has done for us by the working of the Holy Spirit in us. And typical in Paul's letters is the incorporation and reference to not just one member of the Trinity, but interspersed is references to the Son and the Spirit.
So when we consider our approach, it is to recognize who it is we are speaking to and the proper attitude that we should have. And you could conclude from this that when Paul says, I kneel before the Father, he's recognizing that through Christ, God is his Father both by creation and by covenant because of what Christ has done. So even when we conclude our worship service with the taking of communion, there's a reminder of a covenant relationship that has been established through Christ. So therefore, we too kneel before the Father, the one from whom everyone on earth can look back and see their origin and creation. So the first level in Paul's prayer that should excite us, remind us, and teach us how to pray effectively and joyfully is to go back to simply the thought of approach as we approach God in Christ. But the second word that I want us to look at is simply appeal. What does Paul pray for? Uh, and I think as you look at this, you realize Paul's prayers are not just some generic uh, form sort of prayer that he just quickly fills in blanks of people he's thinking of, but, but they're very specific. They're, they're tailored toward the congregation that he's writing to. And I think as we pray daily for one another, our prayers should be very specific. Our, our appeals, our petitions should be based on the people we know, what we know about their life, what we know about what they do all week, uh, their family dynamics, other factors in their life. So you see Paul's appeal here in verses 16 through 19. And so there he begins and says in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inward being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And let's take that, that one section there as his first appeal or petition, that you would be strengthened with power. Now notice the basis of that appeal is the same basis that he prayed in chapter 1, because it mentions here, I pray that out of his, referring to God's, glorious riches. And if you look in the prayer in chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, there Paul says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So I guess a question we should always ask ourselves in listening to our prayers, do they reflect this limitless resource that we have in God? Or are our prayers often, as some would say, our prayers are too small? This is if we're praying to a God who is like us, who has limits, and, and certain things may be beyond his ability to do. Paul has couched in this prayer on both occasions, says, I'm praying this because I know who my God is, his, his glorious riches. Notice in, in both sections, and we'll see this later in verse 20, Paul uses a phrase like incomparable, immeasurable, uh, 
these words are often words Paul sort of coins. Like there's, there's not a phrase that would best describe what he's saying. So he'll take two different words and, and put them together and sort of do a hybrid of a word. In other words, he's able to do way beyond we can even expect, more than we can even ask. You, you cannot out-ask God for something. But let's go back to his specific request, that you would be strengthened with power. I'm going to take a wild guess that somewhere last week you felt tired. Not, not just physically, but maybe spiritually, discouraged, um, struggling a little bit. So that would mean all of us stand in need of what he's talking about here. And so whether you're a believer in the 21st century or believer in the 1st century, this prayer is very relevant. May, may they be strengthened with power. May they be enabled. Uh, the word power here speaks of being given the ability to do what you have been called to do. And that would dovetail perfectly with his first prayer. I pray that you would live up to the hope of your calling. How is that even possible? Well, I'm praying that you would be strengthened, enabled with power. But then you notice in verse 17, there, there's a second part of this first request. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he's writing to believers. So a question may pop up in your mind. Well, I thought if you're a believer, you already have the Holy Spirit. You are correct. Paul's not praying that they would receive the Spirit. He's praying that they would have a greater awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. This reality of an abiding presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit, that you would be more and more keenly aware of that as you go through your week. And once again, I would say, how many of you honestly would say, yeah, you know, I, I I, I needed that last week. And you're going to need it again this week. So here's where we can kind of take what we know about each other and think about how each of us spend our week, whether you're retired, whether you're working in a certain location. We can match that with how to pray for you. you know, well, this is where you go every day. This is where you spend a lot of your time. What kind of challenges might you face in that environment? Not just physical challenges, but, but spiritual challenges. And so you can take this level and say, well, here's how I can pray for my brother or sister in Christ, that they would be strengthened with power. That's his first appeal, his first request. And again, keep in mind the confidence Paul has as he prays this is that God is a God who doesn't just hear prayer. He's a God who answers prayer. So Paul's not just like throwing this out there saying, well, I, I hope, I hope this is what God does. He's saying, no, no, I'm, I'm pleading with God to do this because he knows what you need and he is sufficient for all your needs. But let's go to the second request or appeal in verse 17, the last half of the verse. He goes on and says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love 
of Christ. So that gives us his second appeal. And this one is related to the fact, first, that you would be rooted and established. Two metaphors out of botany and architecture, uh, this thought of being well-grounded and being built up. And the reason for that is he wants you to have a greater knowledge of Christ's love for you. You know, the word that he uses there is that you would be able to grasp with all the saints. Literally, it means to, to grab hold of, uh, to possess, to hold on to. As we go through our week, as we pray for each other, are we praying that, that you, each one, would grasp the reality of just how much Christ loves you? We, we began our service by singing, you know, the amazing love of God. But I would say probably as we venture through our week, often that reality can kind of be pushed back farther and farther in our minds. And notice Paul says, not that you would grasp how much you love Christ, because where he want, first wants to put your thoughts is on what is unchanging. That is Christ's love for you. And so in this second request, as you, you, I'm praying that you be rooted and established, that you would continue to grow in Christ. And as you grow, you would have more and more an awareness of Christ's love for you. Just contrast that with how our world values things. So it's based on performance. You know, it's, it's not as if, like for many workplaces, you have performance reviews. And, and whether you perform well or not may affect whether you'll get a raise, what happens to your job. Uh, imagine if that's how God treated us. Six-month performance review. Looks at everything about you and me. Looks at our attitudes and says, well, you know, it just doesn't look like it's going to work out. You know, I think we need to just go in different directions. You know, here Paul's saying, I, I want you to grasp this. Compound that with the reality of even life in the first century. Paul's in prison. His, his believers that he's writing to, for many Jews in the first century, they lived probably more like a, a lower level, economic level, even many on poverty. So they didn't have a whole lot that they could look to and say, here's my security. Paul says, I, I pray that you would grasp, that you would take hold of that, the reality of the knowledge of the love of Christ. But then you get to his third request in verse 19. Not to just know this love of Christ, but verse 19 he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So there's a reason he wants you to know this love. That is that you would display that love, especially to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Very similar what he says in Galatians 6.10, you know, we are to take care of the household of faith first. And then that love is to be evident to others, but what good is it, what evidence of a changed and transformed life is it if we don't truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And Paul is associating here one of the ways that love is displayed. Not the only way, but one is, do we pray like this 
for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you see in this third petition, he says that you would know. Very strong verb. Uh, experientially know this. That, that it would be real in your life. Not just information you have, but it, it goes right down to the very core of your being. And then he adds the fact that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Here's where he's going with this love should be manifest and put on display through you. And this thought of fullness, Paul's not saying we become God, but he's saying we can increasingly reflect his character. So much so that if you look at the next chapter, Ephesians 4, same phrasing is used in Ephesians 4, verse 13. We're talking about how the church is to function and the purpose of gifts. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Same concept there, that we would be complete in Christ. And we want that, not just for ourselves as believers, we want that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul was not the only apostle who saw the importance of knowing God and knowing his love for us, and then that love being expressed in our relationships with one another. Uh, look with me at the epistle of 1 John. It's not the gospel, but the epistle of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 and verses 13 through 16. So here you have the apostle John writing. Uh, he is the one who Jesus affectionately referred to as the beloved one. Uh, but in 1 John 3, listen to what he says about the display of love. Verses 13 through 16. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. A very clear evidence of the apostles' infirm agreement here on a grasp of the knowledge of God's love for you in Christ is going to be evident and displayed in your life by your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can hear that coming out through Paul's prayer. But there's a third level to his prayer. And it's a fitting conclusion even to the first half of the book of Ephesians. So go back to Ephesians chapter 3. And we have in verses 20 and 21 a very moving doxology. Uh, and I mentioned that this is a fitting conclusion to the first half of this letter. Typical of Paul's letters, first half is doctrine, then second half is going to be practical application. So as he closes out, you know, this richness of who we are in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us in Christ, he's moved to this song of adoration. And our prayer somehow as we come before the Lord, approach him, appeal to him on behalf of our brothers and sisters, should always come around to adoration. 
And so you notice in this doxology that you have three, three elements that stand out. And this should be in our prayers in some way. Maybe not repeated by word for word like Paul does here. But notice the first in verse 20. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. As he prays, he praises God for what God is able to do. Not, not merely what God has done, that's important, uh, but he's praising God for what God is able to do, which goes back to there's no limit to his resources, to his love for his children, for you and me in Christ. So where in our prayers do we find that kind of attitude reflected? That, that we are rejoicing, we are confident in the God whom we are approaching and bringing these petitions to. Paul says, I, I am praising God. He can do immeasurably more than I could even ask or imagine. But he goes on in verse 21, and he says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Part of adoration certainly would be how do we pepper praise and giving God glory in our prayers? And since the heart of prayer is triune, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, somehow in our prayers we should also reflect a triune emphasis of praise, giving glory. The word glory is the root from which we get the word doxology, doxa, which means splendor or brilliance. So Paul, in his prayer, reminds himself and these believers who are going to hear this prayer as they read this letter of God being the one who created all. and didn't just create everything and sustain it, but Christ is the head of the church. So notice his prayer even builds up our understanding of the church the purpose of the church. It's not self-centered. It's not just this prayer is all about me or this prayer is for my brothers and sisters in Christ and it's all about their circumstances. Everything comes back to building up, praising God for both being our creator as well as Jesus Christ, the head of the church. But there's one final phrase in his doxology. We might almost miss it because it, it just flows so smoothly. We're in verse 21 after saying glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He says throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. His adoration in this prayer is to reflect that God is to be glorified in every generation. In every age. So in other words, as we pattern our prayers using some of these elements, we're doing exactly what Paul said, that, that God would be glorified in every generation forever and ever. That there's no expiration date on the reality of who God is and the power of prayer that is really open to all of us in Christ Jesus. Andrew Murray's a very fascinating guy, a missionary for many years in South Africa, uh, wrote a number of different books, 
Uh, one of his classics is a pretty thin book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And it's all based on how to, in a sense, pursue after God in prayer. But I want to share you this opening to the preface of the book that Murray himself wrote to kind of give you a heads up. Here's what he would want to see happen if you read this book. Andrew Murray writes, As a result of this book, may God open our eyes to see what the holy ministry of intercession is. May he give us a large and a strong heart to believe what mighty influence our prayers can exert. And may all fear as to our being able to fulfill this vocation vanish as we see Jesus living ever to pray, living in us to pray. In other words, you may read this and say, I, I wish I could pray like Paul. I wish I could do what Andrew Murray's writing about. Well, there's no reason why you can't. Because remember, Jesus Christ intercedes for us continually before the Father's throne. The spirit of intercession is given to us in the Holy Spirit. So let's see, as we obey God's word, let's see that our prayers touch on these three level, levels, approach, appeal, and adoration. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is very evident that if we desire to pray effectually, if we desire to pray joyfully, that the only way we learn to do that is by reading your word and is by engaging in prayer. And so continue to lead us as we seek to worship you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.